it has taught me so much, not only about the world of entrepreneurship and business marketing and all the good stuff that you learn in um, business school, but really about myself as an entrepreneur, a mother, a professional, and also the relationship that I've built with my co-founders has been invaluable. And it's been a great experience. It's not for the faint of heart, but if you want to put your all into something that means a lot to you, mm-hmm. a social cause, a business idea, be ready for the grit, the resilience and resourcefulness it takes to get through the sleepless nights. And also the self-awareness to work with partners who may not agree with you and how to come to common ground on business ideas and strategy. So it's been a great experience. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome back to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and this is episode 119, and also the third of six episodes of my little series, As It Happens, that I've created to take us to the finish line in season three. And today, my guest is Joyce Kadeska. So Wall Street's a tough place, not easy to get a job there, and not easy to move up. Joyce Kadeska after an undergraduate degree at Columbia and an MBA at Dartmouth, landed a job at Goldman Sachs, and then not long after that, moved to the Wall Street powerhouse J.P. Morgan and Chase. She moved up, became VP, and then she quit. It wasn't what she really wanted to do with her life. As I'm sure many of you know, leaving a VP job at Wall Street means leaving some money on the table, not only in the short term, but the upside as she continues to progress or would have continued to progress through the ranks to bigger and bigger jobs. But she gave that all up. And what happened to Joyce? Why did she do this? Well, the pandemic hit and not long after her promotion. And like many others, she just had to click pause on a fast paced career. She felt compelled to think about what does she really aspired to? And was this to help other people by having a social impact on their lives and on their communities that they live in. That's what she wanted to do. And she was willing to give up a high powered job on Wall Street to do that. This is how Joyce Kadeska describes her background in her bio. She's an experienced general management leader devoted to social justice, inclusion, and equity. Her corporate work experience includes finance, strategy, and HR roles at leading global Fortune 100 companies such as Microsoft, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley. Her life purpose is to empower individuals to achieve their educational, family, and professional goals. The life pivot was a big one, let's face it. Along with working with a couple of nonprofits, she began a startup and took on the president's role. The company's called FAMHQ, that's F-A-M-H-Q, LLC, a tech-enabled family concierge, holistic coaching, and dedicated childcare service designed to maximize time, energy, and success for busy working mothers. Joyce was inspired to create FAMHQ based on her own challenges. As a busy corporate mom, a single mom, and through her work as a professional development coach and a childcare advocate for underserved families. Through partnerships with reliable companies, supportive co-founders, and an experienced in-house staff, Joyce offers an affordable, user-friendly, one-stop app through FAMHQ to give working moms access to resources that help them set goals and crush them. In this episode of the SIDCast, we follow Joyce as she works to get her startup off the ground all while being a single mom during COVID. It's not easy. And it's always so inspiring to see people go for their passion, go for what they care about, for their aspirations, focusing on what they want to do, really want to do, even with all the bumps and challenges along the way. We're going to check in this time with Joyce at three different times in this episode. The first segment was recorded almost exactly one year ago in December, 2020. I'll introduce you to Joyce, She'll share her background, discuss in her own words, just why she left JP Morgan and what her startup is all about. We'll end the first segment with Joyce sharing what comes next, what she hopes to accomplish. As It Happens brings Joyce Kadeska's story to you in real time. 
And anyone who's ever worked on a startup, let alone being the founder, knows that not everything goes according to plan. But the words that stuck with me throughout my conversations with Joyce were resilience, passion, empathy, intelligence, and purpose. I'm sure you'll see these very same attributes at work as well. Here's Joyce Kadeska. Welcome to the SIDcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Joyce Kadesa. How are you, Joyce? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Now, well, let's see. Today is Monday, December 14th, and we are recording the first of three short sessions that will follow your journey, Joyce, as you launch and start to flesh out your entrepreneurial project. I want to go back to what got you into that situation. And of course, you were one of my students at the Tuck School at Dartmouth a few years ago. And maybe we can start by sharing a little bit about your journey that got you to Tuck. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. I came to Tuck in 2011, graduated in 2013. But before Tuck, I was working at a nonprofit helping high school students get into college. And so I came to Tuck as a non-traditional business school student. I had ascended the ranks of management at that organization pretty quickly. And a couple of my mentors who had had MBAs were like, you need to go to business school. I see so much potential in you. That is going to make you a better manager no matter what you do. And I took that advice. One of the things I did as I was applying to business school was I realized that I was not a quant heavy student. And so I started doing some research on the schools that I wanted to attend. And it became very clear that Tuck was at the top of that list. And in order to strengthen my application, I decided to apply to the Bridge Program, where I met Professor Gail Taylor and Paul Dosher, who helped me to become a Bridge student. And that's how I learned about Tuck. And so, yeah, that was my journey to Tuck. Did your parents also go to graduate school? No. So my parents came to the U.S. from Haiti in the mid-70s. Wow. And yes, and they met here in the U.S. And I have four sisters. We were all born here, all five of us. And our parents just worked really, really hard to get us the best education possible. And so that journey, the journey to Tuck actually started probably when I was about 13. (laughs) I got an opportunity to attend a boarding school, independent school, through a scholarship program called A Better Chance. And that Mm -hmm. opened up my entire world to everything outside of my hometown of Brooklyn, New York. And from there, I applied to Columbia through a scholarship program. And these amazing opportunities of mentors and scholarships and post-Columbia, I mean, the world was my oyster at that point. Your sisters, have they gone kind of further along academically as well? One of my sisters, my oldest sister, who was kind of more like a second mom to me, got her master's in public administration and also got a master's in nursing. My other sisters, three of the other ones, they got married very early and had children very early. And so I have a huge family. They did not finish college. They did not attend college and they still haven't, but they're doing well in banking, real estate and sales positions. Mm -hmm. Are they still living in Brooklyn? No, none of us live in Brooklyn now, except my mom. (laughs) We all left. It's a very different place now. Three of us live in the Philadelphia area where I am and the other two live in the Miami area. Got it. Yeah. Because of course, parts of Brooklyn, I'm not sure what part of Brooklyn you're in is hipster capital. And oh my gosh, pre-COVID, it really was the hipster capital. Now everybody's struggling, but it'll come back. I think It'll come back. And that's exactly where it was. We were in the heart of Flatbush, which is now home to Barclays Center and all of these amazing restaurants. And it really has changed and it's a different place, but I enjoy it as a visitor now. (laughs) Right, right. By the way, was French your mother tongue with your parents coming from Haiti? Haitian Creole. I was born speaking, well, I'm not born speaking, but my first language, it was Haitian Creole. Mm -hmm. And a few of us actually went through English as a second language in elementary school, actually. Wow. But yeah, that was our first language and I still speak it. I'm trying to teach my son. (laughs) It's it's a little tough to teach, but (laughs) yeah. Okay. So lots of life-changing opportunities Mm -hmm. that really opened the door to some exciting things. But you were involved in a nonprofit before going to business school. Yes. Right. Why did you do that? Why nonprofit and not something else? I do believe in the idea of a calling. I believe that I was called to help young students to gain the opportunities that I was exposed to. Because my life was so drastically changed by those opportunities, I want to pretty much dedicate my life to making sure other students have that opportunity. So I do believe it was a calling rather than a choice. It's a choice in many ways, but I feel Mm -hmm. called to do the work. 
And that's affected the kind of work you're doing now, but you've worked at a couple of kind of big time, very profitable companies. How'd that work out? How'd that work out? Well, the MBA process, especially at a school as reputable as Tuck at Dartmouth, there's career services that help guide you through these processes by interviewing and using the help of the Career Development Office and some of the other programs that I was a part of while at Tuck. I just wanted to test it out. I had spent six years in the classroom working with students, and I said, now's the time to try this and see what will come of it. Mm -hmm. And so my first role out of business school was a, a rotational program at Microsoft. Amazing opportunity to move to the West Coast. But life changed very quickly because I gave birth that fall. My mom, you gave birth when you were at school or just after you graduated? Yeah, technically eight or nine months after I graduated. Don't do the math. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to make any comment about the graduation parties. Yes, we had lots of parties. And so honestly, what ended up happening was I said to myself, okay, I just graduated from Tuck. I need to make the most of this degree and I need to see if there's a place for me in corporate. And so I had worked at Goldman Sachs when my son was an infant. I did that for a year and a half. That was after Microsoft. Yes, it was. Quickly realized that I needed a ton of support. And for Goldman Sachs, an amazing organization at the time in my life, it was not the place for me. And then I moved on to a couple of other organizations. J.P. Morgan was one of them, and I landed at Morgan Stanley. And I stayed at Morgan Stanley for nearly four years. And that company, by far, was so supportive. One of the most supportive organizations in terms of being a mom at work. I mean, I remember times when I would have projects due in the evenings at my manager. I didn't even have to say anything. And he would be like, okay, when can you get this done? And as long as I was getting the work done. So Morgan Stanley was a great organization to work for. And that's the one I just left in July of this year. In July of 2020. So could you say a little bit about, I mean, you started your career pretty much as a mom and a single mom. Yes. How do you do that? I mean, that's, (laughs) how do you do that? I don't think anyone really knows how to do it. But in terms of how I did it, I really took it day by day. I can't even say that I had a real strategy. Some people plan to become single moms. It wasn't something that I had planned. So I wouldn't Mm -hmm. say that I had a strategy necessarily. But I was so ambitious and I was so curious to learn about what was my max? What was my capacity? What could I give to these organizations and how could I make a difference? I had help. I had a live-in nanny at one point. I utilized every single corporate benefit I could think of from backup childcare to, I think that there was a concierge service that was offered at one point. I remember Goldman, one year, they sent me to London and I had no childcare. My son was eight months. Mm. And I said, can I take him with me and use the backup childcare in London? And they said, we don't see why not. And so here I am flying to London with an eight month old and I get there. I had set up the backup care. She came to my flat. And thank God she was a great person, you know, (laughs) and for two weeks, she came every single day while I went to the London office. I think the key really is resourcefulness and ambition and just that intellectual curiosity and kind of a grittiness. It's like that grit of like, I'm going to get this done no matter what was what got me through those years. I mean, it's just marveling at it because, of course, you know, I have some great nieces and great nephew and meaning nephews and nieces that have given birth one quite recently. And there's a lot of work and they have a lot of support there. In both those cases, there's a mom and a dad. I mean, they're married and there's a lot of work, especially when it's baby. Babies don't care about your schedule. They babies not. are not interested. <laughs> when they want to eat or do something else, they're not shy about it. They are the boss. <laughs> they are the boss. <laughs> so you report it to your son. <laughs> but just practically speaking, what was it like when you had a big job and you may very well have been up two or three times in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. certainly in the earlier times? It was exhausting. The honest truth is that it was it was beautiful in those small moments of like, wow, oh my God, I did this. And this is a human being who is so beautiful. But also I'm exhausted. I'm tired. Mm-hmm. I remember one of my mentors told me, now that you're at Goldman Sachs, if you want to make it to VP, this is what you need to do. And here I am like going for that promotion and this is what you need to look like. And of course I had gained like 50 pounds in pregnancy, right? So (laughs) what does that mean for me? What it meant was I had a treadmill in my third floor walk up brownstone apartment and I would walk up those stairs with the car seat. Then I would do my housework. I would strap him onto my chest and walk on the treadmill and read 
read up on what the next big meeting was about, read up on the news, read up on the stocks. And it was intense. It was exhausting and intense. But when I arose from all of that, I really found myself very proud of what I was able to do. And then that pride fueled me into the next opportunity. Wow. So and I want to talk about that next opportunity in a second, but I'm just picturing this. Mm -hmm. You know, you're on the treadmill. You got, I don't know if it's a phone or iPad or something in front of you. Yep. And the kid's strapped in. Yep. Did he sleep during that time? Was that like a natural kind of rhythm or? He probably was not asleep. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. That's their classic multitasking, but that's a little bit more complicated multitasking than uh, what most people think about. Okay, let's talk about that next opportunity. So you decided to leave Morgan Stanley. I think you said it was July or summer 2020. So that's six months ago. Why did you leave and what are you doing instead? This year, 2020, has just been a whirlwind, obviously with the pandemic and obviously with a lot of the Black Lives Matter unfortunate murders and deaths that have happened in this country that really have hit home for me, not only as a Black person, but as a Black mother of a Black son and seeing what that has done to the world. The pandemic has opened my eyes to being silent and still with myself, giving myself the time to think about going back to what we started talking about, which is what is my calling? Why am I here? Yes, I had just made VP in January at Morgan Stanley. You know, the parties, the congratulations, and then the real work starts. For five, six months, we're going, we're going. And I had to just pause. School went remote. So all of a sudden, my kid is home all day. I have to work. And it's like, wait a minute, how am I going to do this? <laughs> really, how? Like, I cannot take myself back to when I was a mom of an infant because now the kid talks, he can run away, he can say no. And it's not like I'm just carrying him around anymore. And so it was like either I hire some full-time help and get through this or lean into what my passion and my calling really is, which has always been to help other people accomplish their goals. And that's just something that came naturally to me. So in June of this year, I spoke to my manager. I will back up a second, though, because what happened two months prior was I wanted to test out the opportunity to coach MBAs through this organization called Management Leadership for Tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So that's a program that I went through while I was at Dartmouth. And I said, if I like this enough, I could just leave Morgan Stanley and do that part time. And I'll have enough of a salary to make it work and do something I love. So I got the outside business interest cleared at Morgan Stanley. Uh -huh. They said, go ahead, you can do this as long as it's not impinging upon your work. I said, great. A lot of it is evening anyway and weekend. Started doing it. Love, love, love doing it. And what ended up happening was I felt comfortable enough after three months of doing that to resign from Morgan Stanley. So I didn't just resign from Morgan Stanley. Right. <laughs> I had kind of a backup plan to do that. My manager was very supportive and he understood and he said, when you're ready to come back, you let us know. Wow. But it was a tough decision to know that you're leaving all the benefits that I mentioned to you, right? Backup childcare, health insurance, XYZ. And let's face it, the compensation difference got to be dramatic. Oh, oh, dramatic, <laughs> dramatic for sure. Best not dwell on those details, but we work in, in banking at a top firm and you make vice president. Frankly, there's a lot of money there and more to come that very, very, very few people have such opportunity. You gave that up. I did. You chose to give that up. How do you feel about that right now as we speak it's six months later? I had to take a deep breath when you said it the second time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No, but you know what? What I feel about it now is that now that I'm coaching, what happened was MLT offered me a full-time job within 48 hours of me leaving Morgan Stanley. Because I think the universe, I do believe it's conspiring to help me succeed. And I took that job and how I feel about that salary job now is that what I have gained by leaving that behind far exceeds the salary that I left. Not monetarily, right? Not financially, mm -hmm. but the peace of mind that I'm doing what I love and what I was called to do, a balanced person, it exceeds that money that I left behind. And we'll talk about it soon, but I have faith and I believe in my potential upside entrepreneurially. So after I took that deep breath, I reminded myself, okay, this is why I took the leap. Right. And that entrepreneurial upside is a startup called FAMHQ, and you're the founder. Tell us what the business does. It's a for-profit business. It is a for-profit business. I'm considering it a social enterprise. And so FAMHQ is a coaching service for busy moms, professional women, who not only need professional coaching, but they need the backup behind that. 
So that includes child care, it includes lifestyle management, and also housekeeping. I mean, I've been in a position where I've gotten coaching, but I'm so exhausted that I'm not even taking any of it in because I'm tired, right? And mm-hmm. so I hear what's going on, but I'm not understanding and comprehending what is happening, why you're telling me these things, how I'm supposed to implement it. So I would get advice like, you know, you should really set up one-on-ones with XYZ people in the organization. And and I'm like, when am I going to do this? Like, (laughs) I have a kid at home who needs me there. And so FAMHQ is really the one stop for moms who need help in other areas so that when they do receive the coaching, they're present, they're able to understand and implement. And there's also an app feature, which simplifies the experience for the moms, which makes it a very unique offering. So it's kind of like a concierge service for professional moms that will give them access to information, but then actually some real services, I think, right? Correct. That they need, that they have a responsibility to manage to do themselves or create. And you make that happen so they could focus on their career and their family. Correct. That's exactly it. Okay. And so how is it going so far? I think it's going really well. I incorporated in January of 2019, so we're almost a year in, and I have successfully dipped into my savings and really bootstrapped where I have a marketing team. I also have a web developer and an app developer, which honestly has been a lifesaver. Like trying to create a website from scratch is the worst. I have a social media presence where we have a substantial number of followers, organic followers, so no robots. And I'm at the point right now where I am just excited to start testing the market. And I think we're doing really well right now. Do you have any revenue yet? We do not. We do not have any revenue. That has been the focus of going into 2021. One of the biggest parts of scaling FAMHQ is to partner with corporations. So if a corporation could give FAMHQ as a benefit to the employee, then if we have institutional partners, that's kind of how the scaling happens. That's where I'm hoping most of the revenue will begin to come in, in addition to the individual clients. What you're talking about is a classic dilemma, but it's a strategic opportunity. There's B2C, meaning direct to the user or consumer, and there is B2B, which is business to business, where a company is the actual buyer. And this is true for many, many products or services. And B2B is a heck of a lot easier, except that selling into enterprises, it's a very long-term sales process because of bureaucracy and systems and They need to really vet anyone because they're putting their brand name on the line. So it's a big thing and a big challenge, big payoff, big challenge. Do you have anyone on your team that's done that before? Is that something that you intend to spearhead? It is something that I intend to spearhead. I am considering bringing on co-founders and one of them is someone who is a business partner at Facebook who works in the compensation and benefits department. So she sees pitches like this every day. Mm -hmm. And she knows the ins and outs and can definitely recommend ways that I could be successful in doing it. So we're going to wrap up this first portion in a second, and we're going to check in with you two or three or four months down the line. And so let's put the pressure on yourself, Joyce. All right. What are we going to check in on? What are your specific goals on the business that we'll want to look back and see how they worked and how you've changed and pivoted and adjusted as of today? All right. I love this. I love accountability. So (laughs) the three things that I would like to talk about in two to three months, one would be having the app go live. Two is bringing on the co-founders. And then finally, I'd like to have five beta clients that are in play. So that's where I'm hoping to go next. I'm hoping to check in. That's definitely ambitious, but uh, given everything you just described, you've been doing and have done, I don't think any of my listeners (laughs) are going to count you out. This is exciting. Good luck, Joyce. It's so uh, good to reconnect with you and hear your story and where you're at. And we will be back in touch in a few months to see how it's going. Thank you so much. Okay, we just heard my conversation with Joyce Kadeskai in the first of these three segments. The next segment, number two, was recorded on April 5, 2021, 117 days after the first segment that we just heard. And the world had changed. From December 14, 2020 to April 5, 2021, the election was formally settled, at least the U.S. election was formally settled, with President Biden being inaugurated. But there was lots of turmoil, to say the least, as we likely remember all too well. Court cases, contested results, and the Capitol riot. Not only that, 
But the first vaccines were approved and they started rollout. And there was a glimmer of hope that the COVID era was about to end. As we know, of course, while the spring and early summer of 2021 was truly a wondrous time, the Delta variant changed everything. And the miracle vaccines turned out to be miraculous, that's for sure. Yet many, many people didn't want to take them and still don't. A country unsettled. And it was during this time of this unsettling that Joyce Kadeska was building her company. I asked her at the end of segment one what she wanted to see happen when we next talked. And she told us from bringing on co-founders to starting to scale the business to partnerships to moving closer to profitability, a lot was on the table. So let's go back to my second conversation with Joyce to see how she did and what she's thinking and planning next. Okay, we're back on the SITCAST with Joyce Kadeska. Joyce, welcome back. Thank you so much. It's good to be back. This is kind of fun doing this as it happens round two. I was looking at my notes and we spoke on December 14th, 2020. And today is April 5, 2021. 112 days ago. <laughs> a lot happened. I mean, that's a third of a year, actually, isn't it? That's almost. That's a long time. Yeah. From December 14th to now, you know, we had the post-election challenges, the terrible riots in the Capitol, the inauguration, the beginning of Biden's time as president, the very eventful stimulus approval. And then on the vaccine front, lots of approvals of vaccines. And the rollout has been kind of amazing. I didn't even want to dream it would be this quick, at least in America. It's been phenomenal. It has been, hasn't it? Just when we figured this country can't do anything right anymore on a national <laughs> basis, we're finally getting it together. And I think doing better, I don't want to jinx it, doing better than pretty much anywhere else in the world. We can finally see the other side. It's a classic from winter to spring, right? Yes, <laughs> knock on wood. Knock on wood. So how have you been yourself? You've been staying healthy and uh, your son's good? Yes, thank goodness. Healthy. Everybody's good. I am well. And it's springtime. I can feel it in the air. It feels like sort of a renewing season. I'm excited. Yeah. And I think also your son's back in school, right? Yes, he is back in school full time, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. I am a new woman. It's been a full year since that has been the case. And really? it's like getting my time back to do all the other things. It's been honestly, I'm not exaggerating, life changing. It's been life changing. I'm not surprised. And it's really yet another reminder for, I mean, a lot of people don't need the reminder because they're living it, but a bunch of others that are fortunate in the sense of not having to have this type of problem. Or frankly, moms have had a much more challenging time than dads. And then single moms, much more. You're launching a new business on top of everything yeah, else. Yeah. It's amazing. I guess if you can get through that COVID, the kid mm -hmm. at home, starting a new business, the uncertainty and challenge. It's not that it's no longer a scary time, but it really was a scary time. Yes, it was. You really do appreciate teachers during this time. They are angels and they do a lot of work. And I'm just so blessed to have great teachers in our lives. Okay, well, fill us in a little bit about how it's going. You kind of put yourself on the line and 112 days ago and say, okay, here are the three things I'm going to talk about. So how's it going? It's honestly going well. There were, I think, a few curveballs. We could talk about them one by one. Yep. But in terms of the good things, I would say I brought on two co-founders. I'm excited to have two other working moms, busy moms alongside me as co-founders of FAMHQ. So that's very exciting. That's great. And that was one of the three things you said, bringing on co-founders. And you probably had these two people in mind, but the deal hadn't been done. Yes, we are signed, sealed and delivered now. We are working as one team. We have our weekly meetings and it's exciting to actually be running a business with amazing women alongside me. I must also feel not just in terms of the competence that they're bringing, but having other people to rely on. I mean, you still rely on yourself, but having other people, it's got to feel good. What attracted them to this, do you think? Was it a hard sell that you needed? <laughs> <laughs> it was a harder sell in my head, but it was like a no brainer for them. So I met these two women in an organization called The Crew. It's a peer mentoring program for ambitious women. These two women happen to be in my cohort of eight women. I have been talking about this business and I've known them now for about two and a half years in this program. And we talk about our goals. They help me with sort of being a sounding board. And as part of the group, I felt like I was gravitating toward them. And they individually talked about their goals of wanting to get involved in a similar venture. And I thought to myself, could this be a great opportunity? And when mm -hmm. I brought it to them, it took me like a month to actually say it after I thought of the idea. And when I finally did, they were like, oh, my God, I'm so honored you're considering me. I think this is exciting. 
And so it was a no-brainer for them. But again, in my head, it was kind of like, oh my God, are they going to do it? Are they going to think it's awesome enough like I do? And so it was a great opportunity to have them on board. Yeah, that's great. It goes to show you again, the power of the network that you develop. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, I mean, you didn't probably think about it this way, but you were recruiting them, not just recruiting them, but kind of testing them out in a way. If you thought you were compatible, if you thought they'd bring something. Is it the case that they bring something different than you do? Yes. I think in some ways we all have the motherhood experience. We all have the professional experience of working moms, but individually we bring different skill sets. So for example, I've gotten tons of feedback from professors and bosses and whatnot that I execute very well, but the strategy piece is something that I still need to kind of build. And I've been very introspective and humble in that I need to supplement that strategic mindset. And so one of our co-founders is head of a strategic group in an investment management firm. And she is just killer in terms of just strategic planning and thinking and oversight. The other woman is the diversity and inclusion like guru. She is global head of Fortune 500 company in diversity and inclusion. And because FAMHQ is a social enterprise, we really want to level the playing field for working moms. And so as we build our B2B business, selling this idea to companies, the diversity and inclusion piece will be a major aspect of the business. And she also brings a sales mentality to this whole thing. And so yes. I think we're good together. That's great background. But are they working full time also? They are working full time. Yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you thought about what kind of share of not just share of mind, but share of time that they can dedicate to this, right? Yes. Yes. And as we thought about the equity and what the business looks like, we made it proportional to what they'll be contributing. Mm -hmm. In addition to eventually we'll be bringing on a technical co-founder that will help with the app piece of this whole thing. And he's actually our vendor who we are closing the vendor relationship with who's going to join soon. And so it's a lot of time, but it's something that they've signed up for mm -hmm. and that we all know what we're getting into and we're excited to just get it up and running. Yeah, well, that'll definitely be something to look at and pay attention to because as dedicated as they are, excited as they are, there's only 24 hours in a day. Yeah. <laughs> as you well know, you've probably used every one of them yep. Yep. in the last year. Okay, so that's great news. And now you kind of just refer to the app a little bit. So there is no app launched yet or there is? The app has been produced. However, it's not in the Apple store or in the Android marketplace. So we have to get it onto the marketplace, but it has been developed and it's currently being beta tested. So my hope is that within the next four weeks, before we hit the month of May, we can get it into the marketplace and just to have people download it and see where it goes. It's going to be a free download. And is it a freemium type of model? If somebody wants something else, they pay. That's exactly it. A freemium model where you can download it for free. But once you want to upgrade it to a paid membership, so in a free model, you'll get thought leadership, information with articles, content that drives you to other sites as in referrals. But as a paid member, you get premium membership, meaning services in addition to the content and the networking model we have built in as well. Are you planning to, or maybe have already started to talk about this in a lot of different places as part of your marketing approach? And if so, how are you going about that? How's that working? We've actually been doing a lot of research in the competitive landscape and seeing sort of what our competitors are doing. What we've been seeing is that there are models where people just push out content only and networking and sort of thought leadership. There's a model of pushing out the product and service only where you log in, you get the concierge service, you pay the money, but we're actually bundling that together. And so part of our marketing is thought leadership. I've recently signed on as a semi-monthly contributing writer at Mogul Millennial, which is a digital platform for millennials. I will be sort of the thought leader on motherhood and career. So that'll mm -hmm. be one way to market. The other way is social media, which we are very active on. We have nearly a thousand followers across Instagram and LinkedIn. And now we're finally on Twitter and Facebook so that we can build that community as well. The other method is SEO and AdWords. Mm -hmm. That's something that we're kind of working on with our technical piece. And, you know, traditional methods such as our website, blogs, and podcasts such as this one where I can talk about who we are. Mm -hmm. And eventually, I think I mentioned this in the very beginning, or I may not have, but eventually I want to write a book about this whole motherhood and ambition and career piece as well. 
That's a really good idea. And I'll give you a suggestion just off the top of my head because I do know something about writing books. In the same way that we're doing this podcast in probably three stages, this is stage number two, and it's kind of a real world flow to it. My listeners didn't know what you were about to say now as they listen. Maybe you're doing this already, but to keep, whether it's a diary, a diary that's to be a bit personal, but also professional so that you have the material with you as you're going along. I think people would find that process very interesting. I mean, take a little bit of time, but not a lot of time. I would plug into my schedule 20 minutes twice a week. Mm -hmm. And I would talk into the recorder so you could say anything you want. That's what I would do. Nice. I like that. One of the features I've noticed is, for example, with Zoom or other recording type or platforms is that you can get a written transcript of everything you just said. And so the technology is actually transcribing it as you speak. And that's one of the things I try to do with podcasts is that you can have the transcript once it's done. And now you have a text that you can work with. So thank you so much for your advice. It really does mean a lot. I look up to you a whole lot. So thank you. (laughs) you. I do. Uh, I do. Well, I do think that's a good way to keep track. Yeah. Okay, and now you had one other big thing, right? Kind of where the rubber meets the road called (laughs) revenue, and it's a tough one. So what's going on? Yeah, so one of the things that we have done is we had a crowdfunding campaign through iFundWomen, and that was a campaign to put our app out into the marketplace. We were able to raise about $9,000 through that campaign. We do not yet have paid clients. We're still in beta. Beta was one of my goals is to make sure that we had five clients, five to six. We have five, which is great. I have applied to a couple of accelerators, including Y Combinator, which I'm sure you're aware of. That's a biggie. Yeah, it's a biggie. I applied last year. I got a first round call. I got advice to get a technical co-founder. I have a technical co-founder. I applied again and let's see what happens. So I'll hear about that in a couple of months. I also applied to a couple of pitch competitions as well. So some of that comes with investments. Some of that comes with grants. We do not have revenue in the form of operating revenue, but that is kind of where we are right now with our $9,000. Our co-founders have put in their capital contributions. So we're kind of bootstrapping still, if you will. But I think that we're getting closer and closer to where we want to be. So aside from having some income to live on, although you did, as I think you said, save a lot of money before, is the spend very high or do you anticipate it being very high as you kind of kick off this thing? Yeah, I did the math. Last year, on average, I spent about $4,000 a month just for marketing, research, PR, the app, all of that. This year, it's a little bit less because the bulk of the app is done and that was actually most of the expense. And so we're running at around $2,500 a month, which for a startup is actually pretty good. Our strategy right now is really thinking about launching in New York. So we're not like geographically dispersed yet. And so we just really want to get the sort of minimum viable product right so that we can prove it and then expand from there. Are there potential B2B clients that you're in conversations with right now? No conversations. We do have a list, a pipeline list. We're targeting sort of medium-sized businesses, in particular in healthcare and CPG. Our goal beyond that is to look at financial services institutions that are kind of leading the way in providing flexible benefits for parents at work. But we kind of want to target who is in our network right now. And those happen to be sort of like medium-sized businesses. I don't think I'm ready to go to like the heavy hitters yet. I want to be able to prove myself a little more. See, that's an interesting thing to think about because if you get a blue chip or quasi blue chip client, all of a sudden you have a story to tell everyone. And Mm -hmm. you know what it's like if somebody says Facebook is using this service, how could I not consider that? Gives you absolutely through the roof instant credibility. On the other hand, I think this is what you're alluding to. You got to really be ready because you don't get two shots at that. You got to get it right. Yes. So through all of this over the last 112 days, how do you feel? I feel good. I feel good about my decisions. I have to admit there were moments. I think every entrepreneur has moments like this where you're in the middle of a pandemic, your kid is home half time or whatever the situation is, where you're like, maybe I should just go and do this the easy way. Maybe I should go back to my stable corporate life, right? Like I still have the resume. I can still back out of this. And that isn't to say that I'm not confident. 
but I'm human. Sometimes it's overwhelming and it's a lot of work and it is intense. But staying true to that true north, like my belief that this is really going to be a great product and service for so many moms out there, so many parents who are caregivers, it kind of keeps me going. So generally, I feel good. I feel proud of myself. But there are those rare moments of doubt that creep in. And now I'm so grateful to have co-founders on the team so that we can kind of keep each other excited moving forward. Yeah. Thanks for being honest about that. I think it's very true for certainly an entrepreneur, but for almost anything that we're doing. In those moments of doubt, do you have any advice for others that go through, which is say every one of us goes through that at various times, that how you kept going on that true north as you described it? One tool that I use is that I unpack my emotions when I feel them. So it's like, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling it? Where in my body do I feel it? And depending on where my body, I feel it, I could probably connect it to something like fear, fear of failure, fear of spending too much money that I saved that I could have bought a house with. It might be guilt, guilt that I'm not there with my son as much as I should be. If I wasn't running this business, we can go to the playground more often. You know, is it fear? Is it guilt? Is it fatigue? Am I just tired? Whatever it is. And once I unpack that emotion, realize that it's temporary and really go back to why I started this in the first place. And that feeling of purpose. I think we talked about purpose, why I'm here on this earth, why I do what I do. It all comes flowing back. And, you know, allowing myself to feel those feelings and not just throwing them away. So that always brings me back to, okay, take a deep breath, maybe take a nap, whatever it is I need to get back on the horse. That's really valuable. I think what you just shared, Joyce. I used to say when I was in one of those situations, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? Mm. And not always, but usually the worst thing that can happen is something you can deal with. Not that terrible. But you do have a tremendous alternative, given what you've already done in your career and your skill set. So that always gave me comfort. So the worst thing, I'll deal with it. I don't want it to happen. I'm going to do everything I can to avoid it. But if it happened, I can deal with it mm -hmm. and I'm going to be all right. Yeah. And the other thing is, I've worked a lot in like HR recruiting and career coaching. One of the things that I see with entrepreneurs who have failed, quote unquote failed, right, is that there's always a huge lesson in having built and failed. What were the lessons that you learned as an entrepreneur? And you can take those lessons into anything, into any sector, any industry, any function, and they're valuable and you can't buy that. And so the experience of having run something, fundraised for it, recruited people, operated it and maybe sold it or maybe failed that's still valuable as well. So Joyce, we're going to check in again. I don't know if it'll be 112 days or what. <laughs> we'll figure that out. But what should we be looking for? Are you ready to put this out in the line again? All right. We're going to put it on the line again. <laughs> I really am going to try to tackle this revenue thing that this is really what's going to see if we sink or swim. Revenue is going to be important. Also, our beta clients hoping that they provide us with great feedback so that we can use their word of mouth to market. And I'll put one more thing out there. Our technical co-founder will be on board and our app will be in the marketplace. That's the hope for next time. When you mentioned the Y Combinator and these types of things, that would be great. That would be gravy. That's not essential. Yeah, that is the cherry on top right yeah, there. That's a pretty good cherry, but it's not essential. The revenue, I think that's it for everyone, right? That's it for any company because as you just said, it's a sink or swim. You have to be able to prove the model. And it'll be interesting to think about how you go about getting that first client or this first set of paying clients and what your story is for them to be willing to try that. Maybe some of the pivots and adjustments you might have to make to get that first client or two. Yep. Sometimes you have to give away more than you'd want to to prove the model or even to do some type of get paid based on results yes. type of scenario. Yes, absolutely. We'll see where it goes. We are willing to do what it takes to get that revenue and to prove that we are a leader in the space. So fingers crossed that off we go. Fingers crossed. Thanks, Joyce. Thank you. I'm very excited to hear of the progress. The co-founders are really big and we're going to check in with you in a few months. Get the latest story, kind of follow your journey. Thank you. Sounds exciting. Thank you. Thanks, Joyce. Be well. Good luck. We're back with segment number three, the final segment in my series, As It Happens with Joyce Kadeska. This segment was recorded on October 7, 2021, some six months after segment two. That's a long time for any startup and a lot happened. As before, we'll check in to see how Joyce was doing with her own milestones as well as her own mindset during this journey. I found this segment to be very powerful. Joyce is honest and not everything that was happening with the business was wonderful. The landscape had changed dramatically and Joyce was scrambling to adapt. Her insight, her self-awareness are lessons in themselves. 
in this segment. So I hope you'll listen carefully for not only what Joyce says, but how she says it. We know life is a journey, but it's also a journey at every stage of one's life. And listening to Joyce, talking to Joyce made me realize that life is less a single journey than it is a series of overlapping and not always consistent journeys. I thank and admire Joyce for opening herself up in this episode, for being confident to be vulnerable, for all of us to see, for all of us to learn. Here's Joyce Kadeska, segment three of As It Happens. This is Sid Finkelstein again. Here we are in round three, our last round talking to Joyce Kadeska. Hi, Joyce. Hi, Sid. How are you? Well, I'm good. I've been teaching with mask on and all, which is not ideal, but a lot better than it was a year ago, as we all know, when nobody was in the classroom and all we had is Zoom. We last talked over six months ago, so it's been a while. And this is our third segment, our last segment. So how do you feel in general about where you are right now? Yeah, thanks for asking. It's good to chat with you again. I am feeling very good and proud of where I am right now in terms of my accomplishments as a professional, getting through the summer and spring of 2021 pretty well with my son in school and really just feeling good despite a couple setbacks, but feeling good overall. Your son's in school. They have to wear masks in school? They have to wear masks. They do all day except for lunch, but they're wearing masks all day long. That's really tough for a kid. How old is your son? I think you said it previously. Yeah, he's turning eight in about two weeks. So maybe at eight, it's easier. I don't know. I'm just thinking of these little kids and I don't know how they kids fidgeting or fidget around and all, but that's how he's growing up. Him and the entire generation. This is normal. It's the new normal. New normal. Well, let's hope we don't have to live with the new normal forever, but I have a feeling some aspect of it will be with us. Hopefully a lot more manageable. When we last talked, there were a bunch of things that you were contemplating and planning on and working on. I know in particular, you were excited about the back to school time. Speaking of your son as well, going back to school, you know, where mom started thinking about all the things they really need to do mm. and maybe sign up in the app. And you had some thoughts about revenues and building out the team, really a bunch of things. So let me just turn it over to you and maybe if you could share a couple of those updates and we can kind of explore that a bit. Absolutely. So the last time we spoke, I believe that we were supposed to be done with our beta that included somewhere about around a half a dozen working moms. We did 30% of our beta. So we did the coaching part of the beta, but not the other services, the concierge services. And that went very well. We were supposed to launch our app in iOS and Android and a web app. And that was also done. That was the longest part of this process. And we were supposed to round out our team with a total of four team members bringing on our technical co-founder as the person who actually developed our apps. So that has been completed. At the same time as all of those wins, myself and the team made a very tough decision to sort of reset from a strategy perspective, product offering perspective. And even thinking about how our team is structured, so the human capital perspective, that looked like a lot of just rethinking outside the box, taking a pause, our social media took a pause, trying to figure out how our apps are going to align with whatever we envision. And so it's been pretty, let's just say, I don't want to say chaotic, but it, there's been a lot of conversation going around how to use the data from all the research that we did, the beta, and sort of where the world is going. Last year when we started, there was a lot of legislation being advocated for working parents. Now we're starting to see some of that come to fruition. Education was in flux and what that looked like remotely. We're starting to see that settle down. In addition to working parents, in particular moms as professional, demanding certain things from their workplace, demanding certain benefits, so we have to reimagine what we offer to adapt to the changing society around us. So that's kind of my overarching update. On that last point, is that to say that some of the services that you were thinking about offering may be offered from companies as a benefit? Nothing quite has happened with the government yet, but mm -hmm. potentially through the giant program that may or may not be passed by the time this episode is released. I would say from a government perspective, there's a, so a lot of work to be done. But just for example, from a financial perspective, seeing the child credit be allotted to parents a year in advance, that allowed more parents more revenue upfront to pay for more needs. 
So the willingness to pay is a lot higher than we initially thought because there is more cash in the hands of working families. That's good. That's a good thing. The other thing that's good is you're right. More companies are being more attentive and focusing on benefits. And as we mentioned last time, I was focused a lot more on the B2C model. And I think in the newly envisioned FamHQ, we're going to look a lot more at B2B because the appetite is there. And in order to stay competitive, companies need to keep up. And so these are good changes, but they really required us to take a pause and mm -hmm. think about what we're going to offer. So this is interesting and a problem that an issue that a lot of startups deal with B2C, B2B and how to structure it, which case someone's not sure, but that's business to customer, business is selling to a business, selling to an end user or a customer. So if corporations have more benefits and putting more energy into it, and actually you think about how hard it is to hire people now, more I would imagine, and I don't know whether you've been able to track this in any more formalized way or have seen studies on this, but I certainly would imagine that greater benefits, especially for working moms, would be on the offing for all kinds of reasons. Absolutely. And in addition to the corporations, there's a lot of opportunity in the land of partnerships, not necessarily corporate partnerships, but a lot of the venture funding, I guess there's a lot of attention on businesses that are somehow making the lives of women and parents. Most recently, you may have heard in the news yesterday, and I don't want to get this wrong, there was a huge investment of $80 million dollars in a company that focuses on helping the job board for moms. I believe it's called Motherly. Did I get that right? I actually hadn't heard that. And it's the biggest investment. There's a venture investment in them? I'm just going to tell you right now so I don't get it wrong because this was huge. So this was the mom project, a job board for women, just got $80 million to grow. And it was, yes, a venture investment. It's the largest investment in a woman-focused venture. It focuses on moms who left the workforce last year have created a job board just for moms. And it's called the Mom Project. And thinking about Bumble IPOing, Bumble is a women-led program. Just ways to think about more creative partnerships. And this is not to say that I'm going to partner with any of these organizations, but venture funds are being funneled into women-led businesses. And the way that I pitch now is not the same way that I pitched last year, because last year and the year before, I had to make the case for this. And now the case has been made because millions of women have left the workforce due to the demands. And a concierge service would definitely alleviate all of the pains and mental loads of these women and moms and parents. Right. So the pitching looks a little different also. That makes a lot of sense. What I'm wondering about, though, is it sounds like these things that have changed over since you started this company are positive developments. Not sounds like they are positive developments. Sure, people are wondering, oh, why is this so hard? What do you have to do actually <laughs> to shift from a B to C to B to B mindset or any other aspect? What are some of the things, like even if it's nuts and bolts things, I think it'd be interesting for people to learn about that. So nuts and bolts, I promise you I'll get to it after I say this one thing. With all the positive increases in funding, awareness of businesses, et cetera, it means that more companies are being formed like mine. And that means For there's sure. more competition. And the competition is growing exponentially by the day. The concierge business, an idea that I created three years ago, now there's at least 100 companies. So now that changes the nuts and bolts because my competitive advantage is not that I'm unique anymore. We have to carve a niche. We have to have a brand awareness now. And building that from a nuts and bolts perspective takes a lot of strategic thinking, authenticity, a lot of stats and research. Mm -hmm. And being bold and taking a stand. And I think we're also going to start focusing primarily on women and caregivers of color, which is a big decision that we've made in order to carve our market out. It also has financial implications because mothers of color, statistically speaking, are on average in a different socioeconomic bracket than, let's say, on average, all moms. So mm -hmm. our pricing has to look different. So nuts and bolts, we can look at it from a marketing perspective, a pricing perspective. There's so many perspectives. But one thing that I could speak very clearly about as a co-founder is you've got to be mentally prepared. That is the biggest, most difficult thing as an entrepreneur when the landscape is changing quickly, the competition is changing quickly. You have to figure out, do you really want to do this? Is this something I really want to push for? 
because it is a push. It's not easy. It's not what you, I was about to say, it's not what you signed up for, but you did the signing. You're <laughs> yeah. on both sides of the, right? But it's not what you created originally. And in some ways you must feel good in the sense that, yeah, you were ahead of your time. You had a great idea. On the other hand, oh my God, all of a sudden we're in a totally different marketplace, which is where the difficulties come. So how are you feeling about that? Are you still going to stick with this over the next year or two, whatever the time frame is to make this transition? And how are you as an MBA and as an experienced executive, how are you thinking about this in terms of the different milestones and what needs to happen and whether it's the right thing even for you down the line? Yeah, well, I have three co-founders and I want to get to a point where we all agree as to what that future is, how long it's going to take and what those milestones are. But I can share that we are in it for long enough to prove whether it's going to be a wildly successful idea or not. What all of us agree on is that we don't want mediocre. If this is something that's just going to be mediocre, we are all very comfortable saying we gave it our best. And perhaps we pivot or perhaps we put it down and call it a day. And I think every wise entrepreneur needs to know what that point is because money goes in and money goes out. And when it starts going out at a faster pace and you're not making up for it in revenue, you want to be careful not to get into a bad financial situation. We do believe society needs this. And that's what, so as a social enterprise, we do believe that this is something that's going to help many, many caregivers across the country, primarily in the Northeast to start. And I will say that what I hope to do just from a personal perspective is as I've seen more of the research, I want to commit myself as time permits to dive deeper into that research and perhaps publish some sort of information that could be helpful, whether it's a white paper, whether it's a book or some sort of digital asset. I really would like to publish something that could help working parents as a toolkit for not just survival, but how to thrive because we've been learning along the way. Right. That's one of the things that does happen with any startup. There's so much learning. And I know from the entrepreneur's point of view, you really hope that learning will help you become successful with the businesses, but that's still an asset. And I think you're recognizing that. Let me ask you about your decision to pivot or focus on moms of color. You said that this historically or statistically really is a group that will have less ability to pay than a wider audience. So from a business point of view, Obviously, that's a challenge. Actually, I wonder about you and your partners if you're all on board with that, because that's pretty serious. That's mm -hmm. a pretty big move. But it also speaks to your passion for the social movement part of what you're doing. And there are different ways in which organizations that are primarily focused on the social movement or social benefit side can be structured. So could you share a little bit about that? Not only why, but how that discussion went with your co-founders and I mean, how you think about that? Because as you said, it's going to be a more challenging target market. That decision hasn't been fully baked yet by the group. It's in conversation. And three of the four co-founders are women of color, moms of color. We wanted to do was not necessarily outright say, if you're not a mom or a caregiver of color, you cannot benefit from our service. We believe our service can benefit every mom and caregiver of color, whether you're someone who identifies as Black, Latinx, or Native, or not. Mm -hmm. What we see as a way to bring in more moms of color is through our brand presence and awareness and our marketing. So if we market with a voice and with a target audience or a target persona of 34-year-old women of color in Chicago, and that is who we talk to, how we address that person, what that does naturally is that it brings in more followership within that demographic. Now, historically speaking, women of color ask for less help because of cultural norms. And part of a concierge service that does not appeal to the general average mom of color is that there's this idea that I got this. I'm a strong Black or Brown or Latinx or Native woman. And that is to the detriment of this person because mm -hmm. all of these people who identify in this category, they have a job like everybody else. They have demands. And if you have this attitude and these beliefs, more power to you. I'm not knocking anyone's beliefs because that makes us who we are. But there are certain ideas that have been adopted that can go against 
personal and professional growth. That can be one of them. And accepting help and really embracing help in the form of concierge service for a working professional caregiver is a way to advance career. And that's something that we want to debunk and demystify mm-hmm. so that not only we can build up these caregivers and moms of color so that they can then thrive in their careers and make a better life, make a more successful, more happy, fulfilling life for themselves. The point you're bringing up now is so not only important, but interesting. And it turns out in some form or another, it's come up in several recent episodes of SITCAST. Back at the end of October, Julie Quenville was my guest, who is the CEO of McGill University Health Center, her medical center foundation. And she's also a single mom, has a very big job, and she mentors a lot of people. And she said, you just have to decide what you want to do, what you don't. You don't have to do everything. And if you don't like what you're doing or it doesn't add as much benefit or value, then you need to find some help to get that done. She said, there's no other way. And then not that long ago, actually in November, Valeria Allo, I don't know if you know oh, who she I is. I do know her, yes. We met through Tata. Valeria Allo is fantastic and she has a new business that is all about helping Latinas think about whether they have a business or their own lives. And she shared quite openly about her background and she's incredibly accomplished, but she said there is a deep, strong cultural norm among Latin women that they have to do everything. Mm-hmm. She even said, we don't believe in frozen food. We have to cook fresh every day. <laughs> and this on top of a big, big job. So what you're talking about is a really big issue. And it's hard if you think about it and say, okay, I got to go up against these deeply inbred cultural norms. You say, my God, that is hard. The other hand, somebody's got to be able to do it because the upside, the benefit for women, for moms is enormous. So it's very interesting to hear you say all that because it's really connecting to some recent conversations I've had on the podcast with very different people, but some similar issues. Yeah, well, that's great. It all ties together and the experience of people who identify as women and women of color in particular, there are some experiences that are shared. One day I'll scroll through Instagram and I'll see a meme And that meme will have literally 10,000 likes because it's something that you can just see the image and every single woman can identify with that image of holding the baby and the dishes, the dinners in the oven. And it's like, I get that. I feel that. And so I'm glad to hear that these experiences are shared across different identities. So obviously you have a lot of work in front of you and some pretty big decisions as well on how you want to go about this. Looking back We started talking maybe nine or 10 months ago and you already had started your business by then. So looking back to when you got this idea and you made this move and leaving a pretty big job, as we've talked about in an earlier conversation, and a lot of things are unexpected, as you've shared as well. Has the journey been worth it? 100% been worth it. It has taught me so much, not only about the world of entrepreneurship and business marketing and all the good stuff that you learn in um, business school, but really about myself as an entrepreneur, a mother, a professional, and also the relationship that I've built with my co-founders has been invaluable from months and months of building an app to months of crowdfunding to hour-long sessions or two, three-hour-long sessions of uh, brainstorming and strategizing. These people have become very close to me, and it's been a great experience. It's not for the faint of heart, But if you want to put your all into something that means a lot to you, Mm -hmm. a social cause, a business idea, be ready for the grit, the resilience and resourcefulness it takes to get through the sleepless nights. And also the self-awareness to work with partners who may not agree with you and how to come to common ground on business ideas and strategy. So it's been a great experience. Joyce, I appreciate your openness and your analytical thinking on the spot (laughs) and reflecting. On this podcast, I've had entrepreneurs, very successful entrepreneurs. There are other podcasts that have the billionaire class of entrepreneurs. And in retrospect, everything sounds good. One of the reasons I wanted to do this series of As It Happens, which you're one of the very first people in that series where I get to talk to somebody two or three times, is because it's going to reveal a lot more about what it's like and the messiness and that not everything works out. And that learning is that sharing that story, sharing your story, and then for people to hear it for themselves and try to put themselves in your shoes and others. Would they do what you're doing? How would they do it? 
A lot of people talk about being an entrepreneur, but it's one thing to talk about. It's quite another thing to do it with all the ups and downs. And your story is sharing that, opening up people's eyes. And also, I think being pretty inspirational, actually, for what you're trying to do. It's very, very important. And if you could figure out how to do that and make some money at the same time, or at least enough, that's as good as it gets. Whenever I find or learn about people that are really going for it, I just, I'm not wearing a hat, but I take my hat off. I really do appreciate and admire that. It's not easy. Yeah, thank you. And for you, there were a lot easier ways to go. And not that you know, working in Wall Street's easy, but probably a lot easier than what you're doing now. So Joyce, thanks so much for sharing, for being on the SITCAST and being part of the series. And, you know, all of my listeners wish you uh, great luck and success. And maybe in a year or two, uh, I'll be able to provide an update, you know, like Shark Tank does. They oh, give you yeah. an update a year or two later. Like, where are they now? <laughs> where are they now? That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you, Sid. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SIDCAST is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.